Well, good morning, Sun Valley Church. Welcome back to The Voice of the Valley. I'm Jeremy Pinch, and with me in the room, I have Pastor Rick Whitmer and Pastor John Schubert again. Good to see you guys. Good to see you, too. It's good to be. We, we really enjoyed this last week, so we thought we'd do good it again. Good to be here. Yeah. Yeah, good to see you guys. Uh, today, we're going to be we're gonna be talking about Bible translations, and this, this may be a podcast where we kind of nerd out a little bit, but... Um, we're going to be talking about translations more, more nerding out with one person, I think. No. Okay. That didn't land. Uh, the reason for this, po- the reason, John, for- but John's not nerdy. <laughs> the reason for this podcast, um, stems from a couple of things. John, in, in your sermons over the last few weeks, you've been, you've used a few different translations to drive home a point in your sermon. And Rick, you've done, you've done the same thing in, in your sermons. Um, but also, uh, there's been a couple times over the last few months where we've slipped in a phrase called the Textus Receptus. We have not. I have. Jeremy we has. Have not. Uh, Jeremy has. I. Okay, that's different than we. I. <laughs> I have done that. Yes, and I've. It's been usually goading. I'm trying to goad something. Uh, or From somebody. me. Yeah. <laughs> But we've actually had somebody come back and say, Is hey, that a goat skin Bible? That is you a go- right there? It's a goat skin. I don't think it is. Don't kick against the goat. Yeah. <laughs> come on, but, come on, Patrick. <laughs> we had somebody actually pick up on the Textus Receptus um, comments and said, You know, basically, what are you talking about? Um, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Willis. Willis. So. We're going to start with the Textus Receptus, and that will that will play into the rest of, of this podcast. Uh, so for all who are wondering what the Textus Receptus is... All one of you. All one of you. Rick, please take a moment and uh, share what that is. What's what's the Textus Receptus? Emphasis on moment. Mo- moment. Yeah. Light moment. How long is this moment? Because <laughs> It's just about over. Because there's... <laughs> John, John, do you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Yes. Before I get started. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> the text. Okay, you have. You've goaded me a few times. Um, the Textus Receptus is, um, comes from a Latin phrase meaning received text. And it, when, we, when we're talking about it, we're only talking about the New Testament. This is only something that has to do with the Greek New Testament, um, not the Old Testament. Um, the, two, the two primary languages that the Bible were, was originally given in, except for a few chapters of Aramaic and Daniel, uh, are Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. Um, the Hebrew text is really well established because of the diligent and painstaking process that um, Hebrew scribes went through to preserve the text um, through the ages. And so um, no matter which Bible translation you're using, um, your Hebrew Old Testament is going to be the same pretty much. And the Uh, language itself didn't change. Right. Anything like Greek did. Yeah. Greek really shifted even during the years of writing. Yeah. There was a lot of shifting of meaning and punctuation, all sorts of stuff in the Greek language. Koine Greek is what the Bible's written in. And so, but there's, uh, the Greek language was in a heavy shift during that time period. So that's another reason for the Hebrew being a little more 
stable, if you want to say it like that. Yeah. In the in so when we get to the New Testament, we have we talk about the Greek New Testament. Um, people, you know, when they hear that, they might think that there's just um, one uniform text, and the the reality is that through a process called uh, it's an it's uh, textual criticism, the study of ancient texts um, to discern what is the most likely reading of a text as it was originally given. That's the process of textual criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, there, we're, talk, we're talking about thousands of surviving Greek manuscripts. That doesn't mean originals. Nobody has the original manuscripts that God gave through the prophets and the apostles. But when it comes to copies of those Greek manuscripts, um, there's there are thousands. Um, and most of them, and they fall down into what we could call uh, text types, or some people call them families. And there's four main ones, but really just functionally, there's two. Um, the scholars refer to them as the Byzantine text type and the Alexandrian text type. Hmm. Um, the majority, as in 90% of the surviving Greek manuscripts that exist today, are from the Byzantine text type. And the reason for that was um, because, you know, Byzantine, we're talking about Byzantium. Constantinople is the mm-hmm. capital of Byzantium, that empire that lasted from about um, 300 to 1450, uh, was a Greek-speaking empire. The Alexandrian text type, you know, where where is Alexandria? It's in south. It's in south. It's in America. it's in Georgia, uh, yeah. as in Egypt. Um, wait, <laughs> yeah, it's in America. Uh, they didn't speak Greek. Right. And in the West, you know, you had the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, which was Greek speaking. But then the Western Empire um, spoke Latin. And so, you know, in the 300s, um, the the dominant translation of the Bible or version of the Bible that the Western Church used was Latin, which means that they weren't that interested in preserving and in transcribing Greek manuscripts for the Western church because they dealt in Latin. Mm-hmm. Well, the Eastern church dealt in Greek for, for those thousand years there, which is, which is one main reason why there are so many manuscripts for that, you know, from the family that they, the text family that they used, the Byzantine text type. And that was, that formed the basis of the Greek New Testament that the King James translators used. Um, all the New Testament editions that the reformers used were from the Byzantine text type. Mm-hmm. Um, but something changed around um, the mid-19th century. The, uh, they discovered two um, editions of the New Testament uh, which are called the 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 Sinaiticus, the Codex Sinaiticus, mm. and the Codex Vaticanus. Um, these two um, differed from the Byzantine t- text of the New Testament um, somewhat significantly. Nothing, nothing in any that threatened any major doctrines. But we're just talking about different readings in word orders throughout the New Testament. Sure. Um, and those, they they believe were a little bit older than the earliest of the rest of the New Testament manuscripts that we have. And they had more readings in common, which made them distinct enough to be able to say this is a different text type. And it's it's the Alexandrian text type. And up until this point, um, those hadn't existed. Or, I mean, they existed, but people didn't use them. Mm. And so here comes these two 
um, older texts. And at that point, a couple of guys named Westcott and Hort were doing textual critical work over in, uh, I think it was Cambridge. And they changed the way that the New Testament text was studied. And they put forward the theory that the older, and I'm really simplifying this down the best I can, but they, they put forward the theory that the older the manuscript, the better it should be treated. It, it should be given more weight if it's older. Now, never mind that these two manuscripts, which have very little, um, you know, there are not a lot of other manuscripts of the Greek New Testament mm-hmm. that have the same readings that those do, and even those differ in thousands of places from each other, just in the Gospels alone. Um, they are a little bit older, mm-hmm. and so they said, hey, we should give preference to these, to these two manuscripts, and then we will put together what's called an eclectic text. Rather than just taking, you know, the readings of these Byzantine text types of the New Testament that agree, you know, in the majority of places with each other and using that as the basis for translating the New Testament, we will we'll give preference to these two older ones. We'll consult the other ones, but unless there's a really compelling reason, we're going to go with these readings. Mm-hmm. And so you got a very small sliver of manuscript witness that became the basis for the majority of the New Testament translations. And they added in parts from um, consulting other texts that existed, and they that changed how translation was done. To where today, if you go buy a Greek New Testament from a Bible bookstore or from Amazon, you're going to get um, what's called the Nestle Alland or uh, United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, yeah. which is currently in its 28th edition. And that's going to be in the, you know, basically a direct descendant of Westcott and Hort's critical text. And all of our um, English translations today, the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, I mean, almost all of them except for the New King James Version. When it comes to the New Testament, it's going to be based on a critical text, not which gives preference to the Alexandrian text type, not to the Byzantine text type, which is... Um, what, when, when you use that word textus receptus, it's that text type, the Byzantine text type, which Erasmus in 1516 used to create his Greek New Testament. And over time, that got used, in, you know, that, that became the dominant Greek text up until the mid-1800s, which is why um, it's called the received text. It's, it was the text that was received by all up until it no longer it no longer was sure. so sure. there's that's as yeah there's your nerdy five minutes or whatever <laughs> uh, why does this matter <laughs> do I do that during your sermons <laughs> yes yeah but I don't do it that loud <laughs> some do now the I've reason, heard it. The reason the reason Jer- the reason Jeremy um, gives me a hard time about this is because. Um, it's the height of nerddom is, I, why, is why he gives you a hard time I about it. Actually, I prefer the, the Byzantine text which, reading. Which is what? Which is the Texas Receptus. Which, which translation would that be? Well, the, the King James or the New King James. Okay. Um, just as looking into the process of how the scriptures were preserved through the ages and how God's providence was at work in all those things. Um, 
I'm more convinced personally by the argument that that the majority uh, of the manuscripts that were preserved through church history, the Greek text, is probably the most accurate. Mm. But the reason I don't talk about that is because when you actually boil it down, um, of the differences between the two text types, that we're talking about a 15% difference in New Testament words, none of which are major. Okay, and I've been through a lot of them, just looking at the differences. Because if you pick up a a New King James version of the Bible, it'll actually show you the major differences in the footnotes on every page between those two things. Most people don't pay any attention to it, but they're there. And if you look through all of them, none of them really fundamentally change what you're reading. Mm -hmm. You will have a little more text in the New King James than any other translation of the New Testament. And if you add up all those words that are taken away in the critical text, um, you end up with about the equivalent of the book of First Peter, of extra words scattered through the whole New Testament, mm-hmm. which is why sometimes you'll see, again, like our ESV, a footnote that says some manuscripts add, or whatever the case may be. It's because of this discussion. Sure. But as far as our faith and our, our confidence in the reliability of God's word, it really doesn't make a, a big difference. Yeah. So, so thinking about passages like Mark 16, you know, you'll, you'll get there, John, in, in 12 years. Um, but thinking about, <laughs> thinking about Mark 16, thinking about passages like John 8 with the, the woman caught in adultery, um, there's, there's these brackets that, you know, surround the text and say something similar like some of the older manuscripts, if I'm correct, don't don't have these um, words in here. Another one that comes to mind is is a passage that you've talked, or this idea of a missing verse or something like that. Uh, John chapter 5, uh, verse 4 is missing. So it goes from verse 3 to 4. It says, in these days lay a multitude of invalids, uh, blind, lame, paralyzed, and then jumps to verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. But then you see this little footnote that says some manuscripts include verse 4, which says X, Y, and Z. So um, I guess why why do these exist? Why is it important? Does it take away the inerrancy of Scripture if we're reading you know, from the ESV, which we do here at Sun Valley? Um, I mean, how, how do we think through this, or how do you guys think through this when it comes to passages like this? Well, I, I mean, I think that's one of the benefits of having a scholarly commentary is when you're studying these kind of things and you come across brackets or, um, you know, uh, I, so, so certain words are italicized mm-hmm. um, in different um, translations, it gives you a reason for it. It goes through a, a you know, a, a smaller version of what Rick mentioned in terms of the discussion of the different texts that are are used to come come up with these things. And as Rick also said, that very few of these things really change much of anything. In fact, don't change anything of the New Testament's message. Uh, so that's what I do. I just look at the commentaries that that I use and, and the commentaries I use are broad enough based where they cover the opinions of both sides and none of them are arguing for content in terms of truth. They're all just discussing the 
reasons why or why not mm. those things are included or excluded. And again, I think the important thing for Sun Valley to hear is that none of these things change the message of the New Testament whatsoever, not even 0.0%, 0.1%. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. Even even people on on of my persuasion, which there's not really, there's not very many who who are persuaded the way that I that I am on that, um, just because it's. Well, Very few people started arguing by saying, I'm in the vast majority or minority here in Rick's minority. case. Yeah. He would say, I'm in the vast minority. Sometimes the best the best <laughs> position is the minority position. Um, but I digress. Well, it, no, worked, <laughs> it worked for, for, you know, the minority report, you know, with Tom Cruise. It, it worked for it worked Luther for him. with that thing called the Reformation. Um, so anyways, yeah. again, even people who are persuaded in my direction will use arguments like, well, that, you know... The, that text type excludes the word Christ after Jesus in this verse. So there, see, that shows that it's it was an intentional subversion to try to undermine the deity of Christ. And that's just a ridiculous argument on the face of it. Yeah. It becomes very difficult to take people arguing that way seriously because it's not what anybody's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you run into more with, with people who are hardcore KJV only. Like the KJV onlyists, yep. they're arguing those kind of things a lot of times, and it's just it's not intellectually honest, in my opinion. Well, and I think that there's a difference, an important difference between commentary and translation. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So translators are are not are not have no intent to comment on the text. They're translating the text. Yeah, you know, and I think there, unfortunately, there are some theological assumptions made in translation work that's not fun when you come across it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't think translators in and of themselves are out to present a theological position or to give a theological or doctrinal argument on any given thing. And they're really doing their best to come up with the most accurate word or phrase that reflects the original document. So they're honest people is what I'm trying to say. The translators, and and it won't be uncommon um, to to come across some of those differences when you're dealing with a given New Testament text. Because, like I said, those those hundreds of words that are in the this one text family that aren't in the other, um, they're all throughout the New Testament. But the only times they're worth mentioning is if they might add something to the message. Um, for example, when I'm done preaching the Lord's Prayer, the last sermon on the Lord's Prayer coming up uh, this year is going to be that well-known verse, for, for yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen. You're not going to, that verse isn't in our ESV, except in a footnote, hmm. but I'm going to preach a whole sermon on it because I believe it's an authentic part of the text um, because of this discussion, and that's my personal conviction, hmm. and it's an entirely, now let's say I'm wrong, right, and that it's not part of the text. It's an entirely biblical reality, and it's there in a footnote, and there's enough manuscripts of our New Testaments that have it that I think warrant an exposition of it. Sure. Well, it's the same thing with the end of Mark 16. Sure. Probably shouldn't be there, <laughs> yeah. but it's there. Yeah. Um, it's in early manuscripts, and so they included it. But there's a really good argument for it not being included. Like, the whole point of Mark's book yeah. is undermined by this ending and not not in a theological sense in a literary sense mm. it's it, 
Mark intended for us to see the book end in verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mm. That's where Mark wanted his text to end, simply because his whole message is about how do we handle chaos? How do we deal with this, this world we live in? And guess what? Our Savior came out of the tomb. Mm. That's what happened. Mm. That's that's how we look at th- we look at the world now through the eyes of one who has seen a resurrected Lord. That's how we look at the world. Mm. This the rest of this is true. It's it, it's biblical, but it probably wasn't in Mark's coming off of Mark's pen. What are you going to do with those? Verses when you get there, you're going to preach them. You're going to preach them. Okay. Oh yeah. But you don't, because they're in the ESV but though. You don't think, but, no, but <laughs> but you don't think that they were originally part of Mark's, Mark's manuscript. Work. I don't. And see, whereas I I would believe that they are, hmm. and that's that's where the difference. But this of, is coming. These, from, but you're this is this is not coming from the oldest. This is coming from the oldest. It's coming that, from Alexander right. Codex Alexandrius, sure. which and, is what uh, you Vaticanus. don't embrace as much. Right. But you would teach these anyway. And John's going to preach them, believing that they weren't original. Yeah. And I would preach them, believing that they were. But you would probably get identical sermons. Right. You know, right. and, and so functionally, I mean, there's a reason we don't talk about this except when you say, hey, we're going to nerd out for a moment because our faith is untouched. Well, and I think I think people, when they read the Bibles, they, they come across these things and go, what are these brackets here for? Right. And why does this footnote say some of this doesn't is not included in the earliest manuscripts? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if I, was, if I was reading the Bible for the first time and I came across something like that, I'd go, okay. Is there an issue with this here? Is there? Is well, there... there is an issue. That's why it's in brackets. But, but the, but the I mean, issue like, is not salvific. Yeah, that's what at I mean. all. That's what I mean. So you don't come across uh, uh, words in John eight where Jesus said, "I and my Father are one," in brackets, mm-hmm. right? Ever, right. Right. right? So right, and that's an important point. That's what we've been trying to communicate sure. here. It's an issue sure. of textual criticism, yeah. not of biblical faith, right? Yeah. And our confidence is like, okay, so John and I have different views on that. And yet, um, the, there's, we have the same utter confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture mm. and the, the, the integrity of God's Word, as we should. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why, you know, God... I don't know why God uh, preserved the text the way he did and, and didn't do some other things that would have been nice, you know, because I can see some skeptics saying, well, the fact that you're even having this discussion about which words are authentic and da, 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 doesn't that undermine mm. the inerrancy of the text? Mm. No, it does not. Um, mm. But I can see someone, and people do, use that as, you know, ammo against the sure. integrity of Scripture. But this is more of a conversation among the faithful <laughs> than it is apologetics. Yeah. yeah, so if you're an unfaithful listener, you can turn this off right now. <laughs> In fact, we want you to. You pick up the phone. I'm going to give you John's cell phone right now, and I want you to call and figure out how to be saved. <laughs> yeah. 1-800. <laughs> yeah. So, I, so I, was on, I was on BibleGateway.com this morning. That's uh, definitely inspired. It is. It is very, <laughs> very inspired. Um, but I went through and just counted the English translations, how many they had there, and I think I got 62 different Ooh. translations. Um, so I guess my, my question is, are, are all translations the same? 
and I'm not talking about the the textual variation because I think we've we've just kind of worked through that. But I'm talking about the the truthfulness, the authenticity of of these translations. Are they all the same? Is the ESV the same as the NLT or something like that? I mean, no. I, which is why they're they've bound another book and called it a Bible, <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's true. I, I'm being serious. Yeah. yeah. It, there there is. A, a different reason for the the good news version versus the NASV version, yeah, or the ESV versus the NLT, to use your illustration. Yeah. There there is a difference, and it's and it's and it's not about the truthfulness of the text. It, it's about the uh, literary style of the text. So there's there's in in translation world there is more literal to less literal a spectrum yeah you know from hyper literal to more paraphrastic like okay this is the idea of the paraphrase or the of the paragraph yeah okay um so and that's an important one so the the reason it's important is like uh for technical study of the scriptures versus devotional reading of the scriptures. If you're going to do a technical study of the text, you want probably as literal a text you can get. And there is no such thing as a word for word literal. Right. It doesn't exist. People use that terminology, but it does not exist. It'd be super awkward. Well, it doesn't work. <laughs> it, it's hard enough to go between Spanish and English, right. let alone ancient Greek and English. Yeah. I mean, there are certain words in Spanish that you can't translate in English, and vice versa. It's even, it's exponentially greater from Greek to English, yeah. Koine Greek especially. So to say that you have a word-for-word -word accurate translation is not true. You do not, we do not have that. Because words have different meanings. And then when the centuries pass, even words that meant something a century ago don't mean that now. Mm -hmm. That's why they're always updating to an English dictionary. Mm -hmm. So well, and word word order in syntax between Greek and English, it would be meaningless. I mean, you wouldn't, you can't do that because that's not the way those languages work. Yeah. It's not apples to apples. No, no. So you know, for example, Greek words have endings that tell you where they fit in the sentence. English words do not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we we we've got an understanding of English because of how we were trained to read and think. In, in Greek, which is one of the reasons I think that God intended the New Testament to be written in Greek, is there is no question on where this word fits in the sentence. We know exactly where it fits in the sentence because of the ending of the word. Mm -hmm. And when they want to emphasize something, they just move it to closer to the front of the sentence. Not us. You know, we yell the word or we underline it. Or <laughs> we, we do something in English that makes people understand this is emphasized, capitalize it or something. Right. Greek, you know, like... Uh, they, the author wants to emphasize that Jesus was in a boat. He puts the word boat and Jesus was in, in the Greek text. Yeah, yeah. Or boat in Jesus was. And, and no one is confused when you're reading Greek because of the <laughs> word ending. Right. You just know he really wants us to see that word boat. Yeah. And so we understand it. And then the, the translators come along and go, oh, Let's emphasize this word. Right. And they have sometimes have to add an English word or two or to subtract a, an English word or two to make it make sense 
to the reader. And mm-hmm. then when you translate from Greek to Russian, it's the same process. Yeah. So that it's there's no such thing as a word for word. Um, but if you want to get to technicalities in a text, you don't want to study from a, a, a text that's been paraphrased or is taken ideas from a paragraph. Right. Like um, the NL, and there's a spectrum of them, right? So on the literal end, there's, I think, what we would say that the New American Standard. Yeah. On the opposite end of the spectrum, there's like the good news for you yeah. version or the good news version. That's a paraphrase of, that a guy wrote actually for his kids. So his kids would understand So it's a, it's a paraphrase of the second language. It's a paraphrase of the English it's language. It's a paraphrase. Well, no, it's from Greek. They translate it from Greek. Do they? Okay. They do. Okay. So they've got the same, they've got the same uh, text in front of them that uh, an NASV translator would have, but they're taking the idea of the paragraph. Okay. And they're writing it in in vernacular, in in words that the man on the street would understand. Sure, sure. So that's why people say they struggle with the uh, King James version. It's not man on the street language, not just because it was sixteen eleven English. It's because of the way it was written and translated. Mm-hmm. And it's not the man on the street. It's it's closer to word for word. So you read the NASV, it sounds like Yoda translated it. In some of the places, right? <laughs> the ESV, the, the, the NASB. NASB. And, oh, the NASB. Yeah, yeah they yeah. actually—that's the one that arguably is the quote most word for word. Was Yoda one of the translators? I, <laughs> he I, might have been. I Him so. and James White. No, <laughs> but but that's why people will refer to it as the not actually spoken Bible, the NASB, because no one talks that way. And then you know the NIV is a little more. Um, of a, a more fluent a, yeah, flu- fluent language and so your NASB guys will refer to it as the not inspired version yeah. because you're being too fast and loose with that and then both of them go and take shots at the good news folks yeah. well and then and then we we land on the ESV the especially special the yeah, elect it, special version yeah, yeah. yeah for the elect so that's how we that's how we got there at, at Sun Valley yeah <laughs> in the in the NKJV, so the the NASB, ESV, NKJV, these are going to be kind of right there in the as more close literal. that you can get to being literal and still readable. Yeah. And um, some have called it just, and this might help us. Okay. Wooden, yeah, wooden. Yeah. They call it wooden. The, those those translations that are that on that end of the spectrum, right? But they're useful. Wood is useful, right? So when you're thinking about details. And word order, and word meaning, mm. uh, and you want to dig a little deeper. It's probably a good idea to stay stay away from paraphrase. Although I look at paraphrase a lot, which is why I used the the NLT last week, mm. because it communicates on layman's terms. It's it's the man on the street language. Yeah, and sometimes that's very helpful when you're studying yeah. or teaching or even. And in fact, my wife loves the NLT and she uses it for her her Bible study or Bible reading every day and just because it, it it's her language and mm-hmm. she gets it and mm-hmm. it's not like the the backwards Yoda talk of the NASV yeah so yeah and I think the ESV it, for what we're, the reason we use it is because it really hits the sweet spot of being really really readable and beautiful and also as you know is faithful to the the words the actual words that you'll find as it can be without compromising the readability mm-hmm. in English. 
because you you have to have something that's really readable in English because we're reading in English, and no matter which way you hack it, um, the you know the original languages aren't going to translate into English. Well, and there's some some sentences in the original language that don't make a lot of sense unless you add words. Right. That's just the, the, the nature of language. Right. And and so sometimes they they have uh, uh, references. They're they're referring to something that's already been said. And in Greek, it's easy because it's got the same word ending as that one. And so it's you can understand it. It's real simple. In English, you know, two or three sentences later, you've forgotten who the he is. Right. And so the translators say Jesus said instead of he. Yeah. So that that's just this real basic example of right. Right. things that aren't in the original text, but are intended by the original author yeah. for you to know. So it's not it's not an abrogation of textual integrity to say Jesus right. here because that's who it's talking about. Right. Does I hope that makes sense. Yeah. 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 And something the NASB and the NKJV do that I wish the ESV did, and this is just personal preference, is they will italicize those words that they add in order to understand the original mm-hmm. that aren't in the original. So, you know, that's why New Testament scholars, you know, a lot of them love to use the NASP because without even looking at the Greek text, you can already see which words translated in English are part of the original and which ones are added in order to do justice to the original. In and, 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 and it's not like an addition. Right. It's an explanation because uh, they're not adding to the text when they do those things. Right. They're helping you understand what the original text was saying. Mm-hmm. But which is why I keep emphasizing it's there's no such thing as a word for word translation. Mm-hmm. It's impossible mm-hmm. because it's a different language. <laughs> if if you know two languages, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you if you know Spanish and English, you know yeah. there was no such thing as word for word translation. You know, completely. There's no. Well, yeah, and you see that you see that nowadays with people who go and 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 translate the scripture into sure. different languages. It it doesn't take you know thirty no. days. No, it, it takes thirty years, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> you know if, if it could take, if it would take thirty days, you could do it with a, a computer program, right? But you can't. Isn't right? that what Google translates for? You know what? Whoa. You have just come across something significantly important, <laughs> right here Why on this podcast. That's a PBT. I am founding <laughs> a new a call, Bible Jeremy. translation ministry. <laughs> <laughs> and never mind, it's going to be too much work to get Punch, that thing. <laughs> click the, the key. Translate now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just don't want to go through the five hundred one c three process. I mean, you know, let's just let someone else do that. <laughs> you? Why do you have ears big? So yeah, <laughs> small you become. <laughs> uh, so I guess um, this is a lot of information that we've we've just discussed. I, how does this help our people going forward as they as they read scripture and as they? I'm a little confused by this whole podcast. Why did you bring it up, Jeremy? How is this going? You t- you answer that question. I told you. How you is this going to help our people? You better not. Well, Rick, um, what do you think? No, ben, I'm still bail confused. me out here, buddy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, for one thing, in a few months when you guys are like, "Hey, why is Rick doing a sermon on a verse we don't have?" You'll know why. Yeah. But uh, I think the takeaway, and I'll just, I brought the Westminster Confession of Faith with me, because why not? Um, <laughs> this is this is what we need to, Pocket to take away from it. Uh, in chapter one on the Holy Scriptures, um, paragraph eight, it says, the Old Testament in Hebrew 
and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. We need to have that confidence that the Bibles that we have in front of us, one of the, one of the great things about having so many translations and, and being in the age that we are is no, never before have so many people been able to check the work of so many scholars mm-hmm. and compare and ask why and, and have confidence in the fact that when we open our, our Bibles, we have the authentic word of God. And this is, this is the big thing. It's the doctrine of God's um, inspiration and his providential care to keep it pure in all ages. That's what they're saying. Right. The word has been kept pure. Mm. And it will be. And yet, and just so that we're not uh, uh, misleading people to think that this English text is inspired and inerrant, mm-hmm. we teach that. But it's we, we relate it when we're talking in uh, academic circles to the uh, original autographs. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a, what do they call that? It's not original autograph, it's an autograph. Because all Hancock. autographs are original. Yeah. Huh? Instead of John Hancock. Yeah, well, it's what I'm saying is original autographs is is a is a is the same meaning. It's a yeah. redundant. It's yeah. a redundant. Yeah. So, but so when you say the autographs, I'm talking about the original documents yeah. by the author. Those are inerrant. Those are inspired. Now our translators grab them and do their best to make it clear to us, and it is 99.9 percent accurate. Yeah. yeah. So to that de- to the degree that our English Standard Version reflects what Mark originally wrote. It's it's inerrant. Our English Standard Version is inerrant, yeah. only to the degree that it matches what God gave. Right. Even the Texas right. recession. And, and you can and you can and you can get really close. Yeah. I mean, super. Like it, I, I've heard it illustrated before, like um, looking at something with the naked eye versus putting it under a microscope. Putting it under a microscope, you can see a little more detail. But it doesn't change the character of that element. Mm-hmm. That's it's, a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. It's the same. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for... Yeah, don't do this again. Yeah. <laughs> to, to us. <laughs> and please don't do it to our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> they were asking. Or one person, the one was, was. One, one person was asking. Next week, ripped. your best life now. <laughs> Actually, I'll be talking about the Texas Receptus yeah. again. <laughs> That's what we're doing. <laughs> uh, church, we love you. Look forward to being with you on Sunday and next week on The Voice of the Valley. Have a great day. <laughs>